Continuation of Chapter 2, The Early Life of Christ Obedience and the Child at the Temple On the first Passover after Jesus had passed his twelfth year, his parents took him to Jerusalem with the other men of Nazareth. The law required the attendance of all Jewish men at the three great feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Tabernacles. When the divine child went up to the temple, he probably followed as usual all the injunctions of the Jewish law. At three he had been given a tasseled garment. At five he learned under his mother's direction portions of the law which were written out on scrolls. At twelve he began to wear phylacteries, which the Jews always put on for the recital of daily prayer. It took several days to travel the narrow roads between Nazareth and the Holy City. Like all pilgrims, the Holy Family probably chanted the processional psalms en route, Psalm 121 being sung when the walls of the temple first came in sight. Joseph must have gone to the temple to kill the Paschal Lamb. Since the child was of legal age for the temple ceremonies, he must have watched the Lamb's blood pour forth from the wound, to be scattered at the foot of the altar in the four directions of the earth. The cross was once more before his eyes. The child would also have seen the carcass of the Lamb being prepared for dinner. This was done, according to the law, by running two skewers of wood through the body, one through the breast and the other through the forelegs, so that the lamb had the appearance of being on a cross. After fulfilling the rites, the men and women left in separate caravans to meet again at night. But the boy Jesus, unknown to his parents, stayed behind in Jerusalem. They, thinking that he was among their traveling companions, had gone a day's journey before they missed him. It was thus that Jesus was lost for three days. All through his infancy there was talk of contradiction, swords, no room, exile, slaughter, and now there was loss. In those three days, Mary came to know one of the effects of sin, namely the loss of God. Though she was without sin, nevertheless she knew the fears and the loneliness, the darkness and the isolation which every sinner experiences when he loses God. It was a kind of glorified hide-and-seek. He was hers, that was why she sought him. He was on the business of redemption, that was why he left her and went to the temple. She had her dark night of the body in Egypt, she would now have her dark night of the soul in Jerusalem. Mothers must be trained to bear crosses. Not only her body, but also her soul would have to pay dearly for the privilege of being his mother. She would later suffer another three-day loss, from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. This first loss was part of her preparation. Christ is always found in unexpected places, in a manger by the wise men, in a small town despised even by the apostles. His parents now found him unexpectedly in the temple. It was three days before they found him, just as it would be the third day before Mary would find him again after Calvary. The temple had great fascination for him, since it was the little figure or model of heaven. The father's house was his home, and in it he felt at home. There was a school in the temple, in which a number of rabbis taught. The gentle Hillel was perhaps still alive and may have been present in the temple to join in the discussion of the divine child. Hillel's son, Rabbi Simeon, and his even greater grandson, Gamaliel, the future teacher of St. Paul, may have been of the number, although Gamaliel at that time would have been only about the same age as the divine child. Annas had just been appointed high priest, and certainly he must have heard about the divine child if he were not actually present. It was in this school of rabbis that Mary and Joseph found him. He was sitting in the temple, in the midst of those who taught there, listening to them and asking them questions, and all those who heard him were in amazement at his quick understanding and at the answers that he gave. Luke 2.47 The fact that he was sitting in the midst of the doctors would indicate that they received him not just as a learner, but as a professor. There is a restraint manifested in the Gospel concerning this scene which contrasts strongly with certain apocryphal writings. The Gospel of Thomas, which belongs to the second century and which is not an accredited Gospel, describes our Lord on this occasion as a professor. 
an Arabic gospel of a later period, actually makes the instructions touch on metaphysics and astronomy. The revealed gospels, however, always show powerful restraint to the point of understatement in describing the life of our Lord. Seeing him there, they were full of wonder. Luke 2.48 They were probably astonished because of the learning which he displayed. The psalmist had suggested that he had more understanding than his teachers because the testimonies of God were his study. The astonishment may also have derived from the fact that it is sometimes difficult for a mother to realize that a son grows quickly into man's estate and asserts his own individual purpose in life. In a land where the authority of the father was supreme, it was not Joseph the foster father, but Mary, who spoke, My son, why hast thou treated us so? Think what anguish of mind thy father and I have endured, searching for thee. Luke 2.48 The virgin birth was implied in her questioning. Her question implied that the emphasis was more on the fact that he was her son than upon the fact that he was also the son of God. This distinction is further underlined by the fact that she added a note about fatherhood, saying, Thy father and I. The divine child answered by making a distinction between the one whom he honored as a father on earth and the eternal father. This answer affirmed a parting of the ways. It did not diminish the filial duty that he owed to Mary and Joseph, for he became immediately subject to them again, but it decisively put them in a second place. These are the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospels, and they are in the form of a question. What reason had you to search for me? Could you not tell that I must needs be in the place which belongs to my father? Luke 2.49 This is an evident reference to Mary's words, Thy father and I. When he said that his mother should have known he was about his father's business, he was evidently referring to what she had learned at the Annunciation when the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon thee, and the power of the Most High will overshadow thee. Thus the holy offspring of thine shall be known for the Son of God. Luke 1.35 His relationship with his own mother he would take up again at the marriage feast of Cana. Here he established the nature of his relationship to his foster father. He disowned physical paternity by claiming his divine paternity, that of his heavenly father. At Cana he would say to his mother, Woman, why dost thou trouble me with that? John 2.4 Then he was implying a motherhood other than that of the flesh, as now he implied a fatherhood other than that which was exercised by Joseph. Never again does Joseph appear in the Gospels. In the temple, our Lord alienated himself from the claim of his foster father, just as later at Cana he would alienate himself from the claims of his mother. His supreme business was to be a savior, but for the moment that included obedience to his earthly guardians. The child was implying that there was something in history which ought to be known to his mother and his foster father, something that justified his being where he was, and forbade their anxiety about him. It was because of that that he asked, What reason had you to search for me? And added, Could you not tell that I must needs be in the place which belongs to my father? He was saying that he must be in the temple of his own father. This was the first of many musts that our blessed Lord uttered during his life to indicate that he was under a mandate, under obedience to be a ransom. The very fact that he associated the word must with his heavenly father meant that sonship implied obedience. At the age of twelve, he was girding himself for something that would be irksome to his human nature, but his whole nature was bent on the accomplishment of a divine must. If there is anything that dispels the false assumption that his consciousness of a union with the father developed gradually, it is this text in which he, as a boy of twelve, hinted at his mysterious origin and at the peculiar foster character of his father, as well as at his perfectly conscious unity with the Godhead. The divine constraints which swayed his life were already profoundly realized by him. He often used the word must. I must preach the kingdom of God. I must abide in thy house. I must do the works of him who sent me. The Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man must suffer to enter into his glory. The Son of Man must rise again. He always talked as one under orders. 
Free from the compulsions of heredity, circumstances, or family, this boy of twelve said that he was bound by heaven's commission. Therefore he asked why they had searched for him. He was surprised that any explanation other than that he was obeying his father's will should even have occurred to them. The imperative of divine love was manifested in his I must. There was no fundamental difference between the boy in the temple and the man who was to say that he must be lifted up on the cross. He would have to die because he wanted to save. His filial obedience to his father coincided with his pity for men. It would not be a tragedy, for the Son of Man must rise again after three days. His plan was gradually revealed to the minds of men, but there was no gradual revelation in his mind, no new understanding of why he had come. His father's business at the end of the three days in the temple was no different from his father's business at the end of the three days in the grave. Like all other incidents in his infancy, this one bore witness to the mission of the cross. All men are born to live. He was born to do the father's business, which was to die, and thereby to save. These first recorded words seem like the buds of a passion flower. On Easter Sunday, Mary would find him again in the temple, the temple of his glorified body. The sword was already coming to Mary before the cross had come to her son, for she was already feeling the cutting separation. On the cross, he would, in his human nature, utter the cry of his greatest agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But Mary uttered it while he was still a boy, lost in the temple. The most penetrating sorrows of the soul are those which God imposes, as Jesus imposed this one on his mother. Creatures can hurt one another only on the outside, but God's purifying flame can enter their souls like a two-edged sword. Both his natures were teaching her to prepare her for his sorrowful life. His human nature, by hiding the loveliness of his face from her during those three days, better called three nights, his divine nature by proclaiming that the Father had sent him to earth to do heaven's business, which was to open it to mankind by paying the debt of mankind's sins. Nazareth This is the only incident of his boyhood told in the scriptures. For the next eighteen years he stayed in Nazareth. He went down with them on their journey to Nazareth and lived there in subjection to them, while his mother kept in her heart the memory of all this. And so Jesus advanced in wisdom with the years, and in favor both with God and with men. Luke 2.51 If there ever was a son who might have been expected to claim personal independence, especially after his powerful affirmation in the temple, it was he. And yet, to sanctify and exemplify human obedience, and to make up for the disobedience of men, he lived under a humble roof, obedient to his parents. For eighteen uneventful years he fixed the flat roofs of Nazarene homes and mended the wagons of the farmers. Every mean and lowly task was part of the father's business. Human development of the God-man unfolded in the village so naturally that not even the townspeople were conscious of the greatness of him who dwelled in their midst. It was indeed a going down in the sense that it was a self-denial and a self-abnegation for him to submit himself to his own creatures. He evidently followed the trade of a carpenter, for eighteen years later the townspeople were to ask, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Mark 6, 3. Justin Martyr, basing himself on tradition, says that during this time our Lord made plows and yokes and taught men righteousness through the products of his peaceful toil. The growth in wisdom that is spoken of in the divine child was not, as we have seen, a growth in his consciousness of divinity. Inasmuch as he was a man, he was subject to all the laws which regulate human growth. Having a human intellect and a human will, it was natural for these faculties to unfold in a human way. In the development of his experimental knowledge, the influence of his environment is to be particularly noted. Many of the comparisons which he used in parables were borrowed from the world in which he had lived. It was through the influence of his parents that he learned the common language of Aramaic, and, without doubt, also the liturgical language of Hebrew. Very likely he learned Greek since it was spoken to some extent in Galilee and was also apparently the language of at least two of his relatives, James the Minor and Jude, who later wrote their epistles in Greek. 
He also learned the trade of carpentry, which involved a further development of the human intellect. Later on, he was accorded the title of rabbi because of his profound knowledge of the scriptures and the law. He often introduced discussions with the words, Have you not read? Thus demonstrating his knowledge of the scriptures. His family, the synagogue, his surroundings, nature itself, all contributed a little to his human intellect and will. He had both a human intellect and a human will. Without the first, he could not have grown in human experimental knowledge. Without the second, he could not have been obedient to a higher will. Furthermore, both were essential to him as man. He had created knowledge as man. As God, he went beyond human knowledge. This is what John describes as the Word, which signifies the wisdom or the thought or the intelligence of God. God had the Word abiding with him, and the Word was God. It was through him that all things came into being, and without him came nothing that has come to be. And the Word was made flesh and came to dwell among us. John 1. The intimate relations which he had with his Father in heaven were not just those that came from prayer and meditation. These any human being may establish. They came rather from the identity of nature with the Godhead. Inasmuch as the most general sin of mankind is pride or the exaltation of the ego, it was fitting that, in atoning for that pride, Christ should practice obedience. He was not like one who is obedient for the sake of a reward or in order to build up his character for the future. Rather, being the Son, he already enjoyed the love of the Father to the full. It was out of this very fullness that there flowed a childlike surrender to his Father's will. He gave this as the reason for his surrender to the cross. Within an hour or so before going into his agony in the garden, he would say, The world must be convinced that I love the Father, and act only as the Father has commanded me to act. John 14.30 The only acts of Christ's childhood which are recorded are acts of obedience, obedience to his heavenly Father and to his earthly parents. The foundation of obedience to man, he taught, is obedience to God. The elders who serve not God find that the young serve them not. His whole life was submission. He submitted to John's baptism, though he did not need it. He submitted to the temple tax, though as the son of the Father he was exempt from it. And he bade his own followers to submit to Caesar. Calvary cast its shadow over Bethlehem, so now it darkened the obedient years at Nazareth. In being subject to creatures, though he was God, he prepared himself for that final obedience, obedience to the humiliation of the cross. For the next eighteen years after the three-day loss, he who made the universe played the role of a village carpenter, a maker in wood. The familiar nails and crossbeams in the shop would later on become the instruments of his own torture, and he would himself be hammered to a tree. One wonders why this long preparation for such a brief ministry of three years. The reason might very well be that he waited until the human nature which he had assumed had grown in age to full perfection, that he might then offer the perfect sacrifice to his heavenly Father. The farmer waits until the wheat is ripe before cutting it and subjecting it to the mill. So he would wait until his human nature had reached its most perfect proportions and its peak of loveliness before surrendering it to the hammer of the crucifiers and the sickle of those who would cut down the living bread of heaven. The newborn lamb was never offered in sacrifice, nor is the first blush of the rose cut to pay tribute to a friend. Each thing has its hour of perfection. Since he was the lamb that could set the hour for his own sacrifice, since he was the rose that could choose the moment of its cutting, he waited patiently, humbly, and obediently while he grew in age and grace and wisdom before God and man. Then he would say, This is your hour. Thus the choicest wheat and the reddest wine would become the worthiest elements of sacrifice. <laughs>